I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Father, may you use these words to speak to us. The Father, we would find joy, we would find peace. Uh, Father, we would find contentment in your words today to walk away from here encouraged by your goodness, by your plan, by your power, and by your sovereignty. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, last week in Galatians, we looked at the famous passage where he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but we are all one in Christ. Um, And so what he was trying to say through that is that all these identities that we put on ourselves, that I see myself as a father because I am, I see myself as a son because I am, I see myself as a pastor because I am, I see myself as a German because that's my history, that's my past, that's my family, and all that is true. But what comes first is not, I am a father, but that I am a Christian. And so who I am as a father, who I am as a son, who I am as a husband, or whatever label that we put on ourselves, whatever identity we hold, is not seen through the fact that I am a father who happens to be a Christian. I am a Christian who happens to be a father. So how I live my life is seen then and identified through the fact that I am a child of God first and foremost, and how I live out my life then is dictated by the fact that I am a child of God. So when he says Jew nor Greek, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. He's not saying those identities aren't true, like they don't exist. No, what he's saying is if that is our first identity, we will miss out on the fact of what Christ actually did for us on the cross and that he saved us and he redeemed us as his people. So Paul is speaking to believers, to true Christians. Again, that word is thrown out a lot. I'm a Christian, but I don't really believe the Bible or I don't believe all of the Bible. What we say here at Elm Creek is that we are Christians because we believe the Bible. Now, we may differ on exactly what the Bible says, but if the Bible is very clear on those foundational things, um, which we talked about this last summer, those foundational things, we cannot move from them as in Jesus was God and is God himself, real God. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He died. He rose from the grave. He has ascended into heaven. Those major primary things, that determines if we are believers. And if we are believers, if we are true Christians, then the fact of all of what God teaches us in the Bible 
will then dictate how we are a man or a woman, how we are a free or slave, that's socioeconomic, poor or rich, how we are, how we look at our ethnicity, Jew or Greek. And Paul says, there aren't those labels in heaven. Those labels aren't there. You are either a child of God or you are not a child of God. There's no fence. There's no in-between. But if you are a child of God, then you are blessed as Abraham was blessed. You inherit that blessing of Abraham. You inherit the justification, being made right in the eyes of God. Instead of having to work really, really hard to be as good of a person as you can, the reality is we can't be good enough for God. And so God came and he did it for us through his son. And so he justifies us before his eyes if we believe in the gospel message that salvation is only through Christ. And so we are in Christ and that we abide in him. He is our life. He is our vine. We are the branches. And if we pull away from Christ, we die and we become fruitless. But he also says we're baptized into Christ, which means we identify with Christ. We declare to everyone around us, I am a Christian. And we put on Christ, he says. This is still all last week, okay? He puts on Christ as if we are clothed in Christ. As I put on clothes this morning, I covered myself. And so Christ covers me. And when they look at me, they see Christ. And we belong to him, which means he owns us. He owns our life. He paid the price so that we might live. And so we belong to him, which means he is our king and our ruler. And we, we struggle with this. We fail at this a lot. Welcome to humanity, right? We, we can live life of hypocrisy a lot of times, right? Because we, we say we got we to be clothed with Christ and we want people to see Christ. And then we go outside and we say something, we do something that is very unchristlike. And God goes, yeah, I know. That's why I died for you. Now, I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to make you more like me. I'm going to change you. I'm going to humble you so that you become more devoted to me. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not perfect. Not perfect. But we know the one who is perfect. And we strive to obey him and to live for him because we love him, not because we're trying to earn his love and his favor. And so then Paul moves on to today where he says Christ, his son, redeems and buys back his people from slavery. Slavery to what? what? And what effect does this redemption have on us? Not what should it have on us, but what does it have on us as God's people? And so if you're taking notes and you see you got really just two points. You got slavery and you got sonship. And what do those two things mean? In verses 1 and 2, Paul gives a human example to help us understand our slate of, uh, state of slavery before Christ came, before, before he showed up on the scene, what was the reality of who we were? Now, in ancient times, just like today, an heir does not receive control of the inheritance of their father or of their parents until a date set by those parents. You don't want your five-year-old inheriting your retirement fund, right? 
And everybody says, amen. Why? Because it'd be spent on beanie babies or something, right? We don't want that. And so you have to wait until they mature, until they're ready. Usually that is an age represented by adulthood. And in Paul's day, there were also slaves, literally bond servants, people who worked for an individual to pay off a debt. You owe me money. You can't pay me back. Now you have to work for me for free, essentially, to pay back your debt. That's what a bond servant, that's what slavery is, as Paul is speaking of it. And when it came to the inheritance, the heir of a family was no different from the household bond servant. They were subject to a guardian or a manager who determined what he would receive and when he would receive it. That was until the arrival of the date set by the father to remove the guardian's authority over the heir. And on that day, the heir received the full benefits of being a child of the father. So Paul says in verse 3, in the same way, just like the heir and the bondservant of this example, in the same way we also, when we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Before we knew Christ, when we were young, immature, not knowing who God was, while we were still children, we were slaves. We were bond servants held captive and imprisoned by the elementary principles of the world. That's such a Paul way of saying things, right? Like what in the world is an elementary principle? It sounds really good, doesn't it? Like, I could say that and move on and go, man, Mark's really smart. Yeah, okay, so what does it mean, though? What is an elementary principle? Well, let's bring it into today's world. Why do we call some schools elementary schools? Well, because in those schools, what do they teach? They teach the foundations of knowledge, the foundations of what we need to know, the elementary knowledge that we all need to know about math, Reading, writing, science, history, all of those things, right? Um, The ABCs of knowledge, if you want to say it. They are the foundation of which we will learn all the things in the future. They determine what we understand in the future. And so to bring it back into this passage, the elementary principles, the ABCs of life, if you want to say, enslaved us. They controlled us. They guarded us. They managed us. These elementary principles, these ABCs of life were the foundation of who we were and how we lived in this world. And so what does Paul mean by this? Well, for the ancient world, because remember, it's easy for us to go, What is he saying to me? But first we have to say, what is he saying to the Galatians? Remember the Galatians, they're they're Gentiles, okay? They're they're not Jews. They don't understand the law um, or anything like that quite yet. And And so Paul goes, he preaches the gospel, they believe. And then some Judaizers, some Jews came into, into the churches in Galatia and they began to teach saying, yeah, it's good to have faith in Christ, but you need to become a Jew first. You need to follow the law. And if you follow the law, then God will be pleased with you and then he'll save you. And Paul's saying that's false. That's a false gospel. That's a false gospel. So he's speaking to the Galatians, Gentiles. 
And in their world, before they became Christians, the basic elements of life were air, water, earth, and fire. Often these elements were under the control of certain gods, certain deities, right? You, you bowed down to Poseidon and you made sacrifices to Poseidon if you were going to go on a trip over the ocean because he's the god of the oceans, the god of water. And so these gods essentially controlled the universe and the daily lives of all of humanity, how they fought, how they spoke, and how they acted. And so Paul touches on this um, in the next passage, which we'll get to next week, when he says, "Formerly, when you did not know God, Yahweh, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So before Christ, the Gentiles were enslaved to self-made religions, which enslaved them to how they wanted you to live. But what about for the Jews? Because we'll also see too, later on, he speaks to the Jews who are in, this, in these churches. Well, they believe, these Jews believe that Yahweh, not some group of false gods, was in control of the universe and their daily lives. We believe the same thing too, as Christians today. God is in control of all things. He dictates all things. He is sovereign over all things. Well, how were they, were they enslaved? Well, for the Jew, the ABCs of life didn't revolve around earth, wind, fire, um, and water. It revolved around the law. And this is why Paul says that the law imprisoned everything under sin and held captive everyone under the law. Be- but instead of realizing that the law was unable to accomplish the life that they sought, they dug their proverbial trench dug their heels in, and they started to do legalism and moralism, even adding their own laws to the law of God to make sure that they don't disobey the law of God. Well, he says, keep the Sabbath holy and don't work. Well, what constitutes work? Well, don't go further than 200 steps from your house. If you go further than that, then that's work. So don't work on the Sabbath. Like, that's what they started to do. God's like, no, don't work on the Sabbath. Well, how far can I go before I cross that line? That's probably the first, the first thing that they should realize that was an issue. Like, how far can I go before I sin? Right? That's never a good question to ask God, right? But that's where their minds went. They became enslaved to the law. And in a very real sense, the law became their God, which is why they didn't recognize Christ when he showed up. God himself. Who are you, Jesus? You're breaking the law. You're healing on the Sabbath. That's work. Like, how ridiculous is that? But the law became their God. It was a self-made religion which led them away from Yahweh and the life that he provides. And so before faith in Christ, we were all enslaved to our own self-made religion, to our own gods, opinions, reason, personal desires, accumulation of money and material possessions, popularity, relationships, being known and heard by a lot of people, getting as many Facebook friends or Twitter followers as possible, or just likes. Politics, social awareness and needs, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Many of these things 
They're good in and of themselves. But when we sat them on the throne of our heart, our mind, and our soul, they became our gods to whom we bowed down to. They enslaved us to their will and their desires, dictating our lives. They are the elementary principles of the world which ruled over us. And then Paul says, what's the greatest word in the Bible? Ah, see, I wish my, other kid, my kids were here. There's, there's one, but I'm not going to put them on the spot, okay? What is the greatest word in the Bible? But. That's, isn't that just awesome? Like, this is your life. You were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But. There's something different coming. What happened? But. Verses 4 through 7. But. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. Now you go, why didn't you say son and daughters there? Now, I'm, not, I'm not being political, okay? I'm, I'm just saying because usually I would, right? We are all, we, we just sang about it. We are all daughters and sons of God, right? If we believe that is absolutely true, but why, why doesn't, and if you look at your notes down there, usually if there's a word called sons in your Bible, there's a little note at the bottom that says sons and daughters, okay? Or men and women, okay? Why doesn't it say that there? And I had to wrestle with that this week. I was like, why, why isn't that there? It's the same word. What does it mean? Well, I, I didn't use the word son because Paul, or I didn't use the word son and daughter because Paul doesn't use it. Yes, it can mean son or daughter, but it doesn't mean that in this passage. The NIV, if you have the NIV, it actually translates it children, which is a more general term, and technically you're right. That's, that is not a mistranslation, but it doesn't give the full sense of what Paul is trying to say. So again, don't hear me. I'm not being political, okay? I'm not being, um, what is it, anti-inclusive or whatever, okay? I'm, hear me out, okay? If you've built up that wall already because I said something, got to break it down, okay? Because there's a deeper meaning of why he says that. There's a fuller sense of what Paul is trying to get across. He's not saying that only males are adopted as God's children, because that would fly in the face not only of what Paul just said a few verses later, uh, earlier, but Christ's teaching in and of itself. (laughs) So that's not what he means by that. So why does Paul use the word son instead of child in this passage? Well, in Paul's day, the son was the inheritor of the father's estate, not the daughter. That's historical reality. Okay, there were some exceptions, but in general, the daughter was a second-class citizen. They did, did not receive any of the inheritance of the father. They were completely reliant upon the father and then upon their brother to care for them, or if they got married, their husband. So there was a certain status that came with being the son. Those who believe in Christ through faith, whether male or female, are all adopted sons, quote-unquote, sons of God, full heirs of the promise. Paul is making a political statement, if you really want to go extreme. 
Are you a daughter of God? Guess what? You're a son. Are you a, a daughter of God? Guess what? You are a full inheritor of the inheritance of God as much as that guy over there does. But Paul is also pointing to something even more intimate. Our sonship is a reflection of the Son, capital S-O-N. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, that's Jesus, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son, big S, into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. As sons, man or woman, as sons, we receive the seal of the presence of God himself in our hearts. This is not some mystical union that comes and goes, but it comes and it stays forever. It is a sonship that is intimate and deep. So he uses the word Abba, Father. This is a Aramaic word for father. So he's saying basically saying father, father, but it's an intimate term. Jesus used it to speak of his own intimate and personal relationship with God the Father when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying to God. He's sweating uh, drops of blood. He's stressed out beyond belief. And he says, he says, Abba, Father, if you could take this cup, if there's any other way to make this happen, then please do it, but not my will, but yours. He's speaking of his intimate relationship with his father. And as sons of God today, we have the same intimate and deep relationship as Christ did with his father. We are not children of God, though that is true. Or maybe say, I'm not just children of God. Whether male or female, we are all sons of God, equally fully adopted with all the rights and privileges of Jesus, the Son of God. So Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. He is also our brother, who we are on equal grounds with. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm going to die, I'm going to get to heaven, I'm going to be a deity, I'm going to be God, lightning coming out of my fingers, I'm going to have my own planet and my own humanity. No, what it means is that I receive the same inheritance that Jesus did, and has as a son of God. So this is not our men and women different or better than one or the other. That's, Paul doesn't even address that. He's like, no, we're all adopted sons of God. We are equal with Christ as far as the inheritance and the blessing of Abraham comes. So how is this all possible? Well, Jesus didn't send uh, God didn't send Jesus with fire and lightning riding on a horse in the front of an angelic army. That would have been totally awesome. Um, but that was not his plan. In fact, God didn't do it, so it wouldn't have made us adopted sons of God. Right? So at the exact and right time in which God had planned from the beginning of the foundation of the world, he sent forth his son, Jesus, Quote in verse 4, born of, a, born of woman, born under the law. Jesus was born under the curse of Genesis 3. 
That's born of woman. That's what that means. He was born under the curse of Genesis 3, where because of Adam's disobedience, all of humanity inherited the curse of the fall. Jesus was subject to all of the temptations and the disobedience which you and I daily face, and yet he was without sin. That's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7. Jesus was also born under the law, enslaved as we were to its requirements and its demands, yet where you and I fail at obeying all of God's command, Jesus commands, Jesus willingly and perfectly obeyed it. No issues. And through his death on the cross as the perfect and unblemished sacrifice for our sins, he redeemed us. He bought us out of slavery to sin and the law. Why? He says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And if a son, then an heir through God. Christ was sent by God to become like us so that we might become like him. Let me say that again. Christ was sent by his Father to become like us so that we might become like him. When we think about being an heir of God, we really, we really think of perfect and everlasting life, right? I'm not going to have any more arthritis, praise the Lord. There's not going to be tears. There's not going to be any sorrow. We're going to live in heaven forever along with all of God's people throughout all of history. I get to see my grandparents again and my friends who have passed away who knew, who knew Christ and believed. God is going to be so good. Uh, it's just going to be great. I'm going to love this time for all eternity being in heaven. And these are what we would call, if you want to use an example, um, or to use an illustration, these were called the rings of this golden, beautiful chain, right? When we as believers, we die and we go to heaven, we're going to live forever and we're going to have no sorrow, no tears. It's a beautiful, beautiful necklace. But if we focus our sonship and our adoption as only receiving these very beautiful things, then we're going to miss the glorious jewel that hangs from the golden necklace. The glorious jewel is a deep and intimate relationship with God himself. Living forever? You can live forever in hell. And you will if you don't believe. You're living forever. Now there's sorrow and there's tears. So you get like half of it, right? But in heaven... We get more than just living forever. And we get more than just having no pain and no sorrow and no death and no tears. We receive God himself. The intimacy that Christ has with his Father is ours. But the cool thing, we don't have to wait to heaven to get it. What does he say? When we believe he sends the Spirit to us. The Spirit dwells within us. God himself is here with us. He abides and he dwells in us right at this moment if we are believers in Jesus Christ. 
We're no longer enslaved to the gods and the elementary principles of this world, no matter how good they are. Because we have God himself residing on the throne of our hearts. Whether male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, we are all his sons, redeemed by the blood of Christ and full heirs with Christ. Man, how awesome is that? So these Galatians are going back to the law, trying to live a good life, and Paul's going, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're, you're eating mud when there's a T-bone steak you've already got right in front of you. God himself is there. You are redeemed. You are a son. You are a full heir, and now you're going back to slavery? Why would you do that? And we do the same thing today. Even as believers, we get caught up in what we say is our identity or what the world says is our identity or, or what we think is important. Even good things like being a parent or being a, a spouse or being an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent or a good worker. And all of these things are good. And we like to then go back and say, well, I need a better job so that I can make more money, so I can get more things, so that I can provide for my family in a better way. That's all, that's really good. But if that is our identity, we've fallen back then on these things because what happens? Has anybody watched the stock market over the years? What does it do? Up and down and up and down and up and down. My brother is ready to retire probably in about six to eight years and he's watching the stock market like a hawk. And the days that it's up, he's like, yeah, and the days that it's down, oh, what am I going to do? I should pull all my money out. And we can get dictated by those things. If he's listening, I'm sorry to use him as an example without his permission. Okay, but we get caught up in that, don't we? We get caught up in that. And we get lost in the things, the elementary principles of this world, and we forget whether you are poor or you are rich, whether you live in the United States or you live in Antarctica. If you believe you are the wealthiest person on the face of the earth, why? Because you have God. God is above all things. Now, don't hear me. Don't say, well, I'm going to quit my job and go live under a bridge. Like, no, you're not listening to me. That's not what I'm saying. But if if making sure that you don't live under a bridge is your sole goal in life, oh man, you're missing out on the most beautiful jewel, and that is God himself. It is God himself. What makes heaven awesome? It's not because you and I are there. <laughs> if that was true, this would be heaven, right? And anybody want to say this is heaven? This is far from heaven. What makes heaven awesome? God. God is there. Our Father, who we have an intimate relationship with even right at this moment, is there. And so we have to ask ourselves, does this truth, I am a son of God, I am a full inheritor of God himself, does this truth reflect in what I say and what I think, what I post online, how 
I conduct myself in private and in public. And there's so many things. Does, it, does this truth reflect in my life? Does God truly sit on the throne of our hearts or are we enslaved to the elementary principles of this world? Does an unbelieving world see and hear, man, we are different. Not different like you disagree with me politically, but there's something different about you. We may disagree politically, but man, you're weird. You're not like me. Why? Does the unbelieving world see that? Does the unbelieving world see that God is the one who dictates and rules my life? As sons, we are called to bring glory to the one who made us his, who redeemed us from slavery, who made us his inheritor. And he set that date, the moment that we became a believer, the date from childhood to adulthood was done. He redeemed us. He made us heirs to the promise. And so if we belong to Christ, and we stand firm that we are all sons of God, and our sonship should be obvious to everyone. Now, what, what do we do when we fail? What do we do when we fail? I, had, I have a, a pastor friend in Arizona. Um, we were texting each other and kind of talking about just life and the situation in our world and then situations in our churches and how can I pray for you and all this kind of stuff. And he made the comment, he said, I'm, I'm frustrated with people who say, who say that, you know, well, the church is just a bunch of hypocrites. And he said, he said, at least we admit it. I know I'm a hypocrite. I know I am. And I don't like it. As a Christian, we look at our lives and we realize that I, Okay, so I could stand up and say, I'm a son. I'm going to live for God. And then I go home and something happens and then I sin against God and I don't do what he asked me to do. And I forget that I'm a child of God or I let something control me that is not God himself and not his thing is whatever it may be. Why does that happen? Because I'm, I'm a sinner who God is still working on. Yes, I am a full heir, but man, I got a lot of work. Thank goodness God doesn't determine whether I receive the inheritance by how good I am, right? And how perfect I am. As Christians, we realize that, man, we fail. But we also realize that our failure does not identify us. We are children of God. We are sons of God. And when I fail, I confess that sin and I want to be, I want to obey God because he loves me and because I love him. And I want to be better at living the life that he has called me to live. I want him to correct me and I welcome that discipline and I welcome that correction because that's going to make me even more intimate with God. But if I ignore that and I just do whatever I want to do, there's no intimacy with God. I don't care what he thinks. That's a problem. We have to seriously look at our heart and say, who's really on the throne? You say, well, well, how do I determine this? Well, I've said this in the past. You can do a basic thing. Look at your pocketbook, that's your wallet, and look at your calendar. Where are you spending a majority of your time and your money? Now, don't hear this. This is not an offering, <laughs> right? Make sure that you give your 10% to the church. I'm not saying that, okay? 
Yeah, God's going to provide for us. Uh, you can ignore it. You, don't even think that. But where we put our time and our money reveals where our heart truly lies. Is it in serving God? Do I think more about this issue over here? You can even say this. Am I spending more time on the internet or playing games than I am speaking to the one who saved me? And everybody went, oh, right? Because we're all there, right? Oh my gosh, if we really evaluated our lives like that. Well, that's a little steep, Mark, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Jesus died for us. Can we at least acknowledge that we fail him and praise God that he doesn't send us to hell immediately, which is what we deserve? He's going to work on us. We repent of our sin. We, we strive to do better, not because we do it in our own power, but because the Spirit lives within us. God himself lives within us to empower us to live a life of obedience because we are his sons and we are his daughters for his glory for his goodness, for his greatness. What did John the Baptist say? I must decrease and he must increase. If we say to ourselves, I must increase and God is decreasing, then we, we need to reevaluate ourselves. We've got to go to him. We have to repent. Maybe we have to delete apps. Just did that yesterday on my phone, Okay. I deleted a couple of apps because I realized I was spending too much time on these apps. And in the end, I was really wasting time because it didn't change my life. Yeah, I'll tell you, ESPN. Okay, I love sports. Yeah, I'm getting on ESPN. I'm like, I, I don't care about any of this stuff. Like, why am I even reading these articles? Who cares what this person says or what this talking head's opinion is? They all think the Packers are going to stink this year. I don't care what they think. But in the end, I realized, why am I spending all this time on ESPN? I spend more time on this app than I do on my Bible app. That's a problem. That's a problem. That's a heart problem. I'm not saying you need to check mark, make sure you're spending eight hours a day in the Bible. That would be awesome. I mean, how that would be crazy, right? But the point is, if we belong to Christ, if we are sons and daughters of God, our sonship should be obvious to ourselves and to everyone around us because our life will reflect that. And that's what Paul is trying to say to these Galatians. Don't fall back into slavery. Christ redeemed you from that. So live your life as if you were a son of God, as Jesus is a son of God, a full heir to the promise and blessings that God gives. The Father, oh, it's so easy for us to be caught up in, in this world, in this life, good things that, that are important to a certain extent, but Father, our, our, habit, our habit is to make them bigger than you, to spend more time thinking and acting and speaking on on earthly temporal things and we miss the importance of eternal matters god that we are your child not just right at this moment on this earth we if we believe we are your sons and daughters for all eternity 
that we will stand in the presence of you, our sovereign, powerful, loving, caring, perfect God who died on the cross for us so that we might be bought out of slavery to be in your family. Father, you paid the debt that we never could. And so help us, God, even though we do it imperfectly, help us, Father, to live the life of sonship that you demand and you call from us. And when we fail, God, remember, remind us that our identity is not in you. Remind us, remind us, or our identity is not found in this world. It is found in you, God. It is found in you alone. Our failure does not define us. You define us. Help us to live that life, Father, for your glory, for your greatness. When people see us as, as Christians, whether at Elm Creek or in another country, Father, that we would, we would exude, every part of us exude who you are, no matter the cost, that, Father, we would live for you that you would reign over us and in us and through us and that we would know and see how to live a life to point others to you. May we decrease as you increase. We ask this, Father, in your name, amen. Why don't you stand and we'll close.